Sports Talk 93.9 The Eagle, broadcasting live from the Zimmer Radio Group World Headquarters. This is the CEO Roundtable with Fred Perry. Ready for interviews with movers and shakers from our community as we dive in for a deeper look inside Columbia. Now, here's your host, Fred Perry. And welcome to this week's edition of the CEO Roundtable. I'm Fred Perry, your host. Good morning, everybody. We are so pleased uh, to welcome uh, on the lines here at uh, Zimmer Broadcast uh, the Senate Majority Leader for the state of Missouri, uh, Senator Caleb Brown. Good morning, sir. How are you? morning, Fred. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, we have a lot of things to talk about. Uh, a week ago, the uh, second regular session of the 100th General Assembly came to a close. Uh, probably one for the record books, one that will be remembered for a long time just because of uh, everything that happened. What are your general impressions? What, what are your takeaways from this past session? Yeah, it is one that that uh, stands out amongst obviously any of the ones that I've been in, or or really any probably that anybody's ever experienced because of uh, the COVID nineteen issues coming, you know, being gone for six weeks in the middle of session and then coming back and uh, basically the hallways being largely empty and and uh, you know people wearing masks and just everything uh, kind of uh, upended. Uh, you know, it's it, it was not easy uh certainly a lot of challenges logistically and otherwise uh, but you know i will say we we all collectively you know there were a bunch of folks that didn't want to be there some folks who felt like we should be there so there was even contention you know kind of amongst the, the legislators as to as to what our marching order should have been uh but everybody came in did their job uh you know kind of put their head down and, and worked hard and so i think regardless of your view of anybody's politics or uh, the view of what came or didn't come from the last three weeks uh, when we came back. I think the legislature deserves to be commended for, you know, coming back in the midst of obviously a pretty tough situation. Yeah, you, there's still a lot of things that you're passing forward to the governor. Um, some some debate over the uh, sort of the the workings of of, of an omnibus uh, legislation where where a lot of things are combined. Can you talk about that? Do you have concerns about uh, legislation being presented in that format? Uh, does that cause any concern for you at all? Yeah, so obviously I think, first of all, I think it's important to understand that that happens every year. So so that's not, that wasn't exclusive to this year because of the COVID situation. I do think it was um, the, the the issue, it was heightened maybe, and, and, and maybe we focused and did a little bit more work through that process than we would have normally. But you always see big, big omnibus bills uh, that, that you, I mean, usually they come from the Senate and, fairly small uh, uh order they go to the house and then the house just loads them up and then they send them back to the senate the, I, I think the one thing it's important for us to remember is that you know most of the stuff that passed um i, I would feel pretty good about there's a couple things in there it, you know there was a, a a transportation bill that we did on the last day that there, that there were some uh, you know sticky uh, a couple of sticky issues within them uh, there's another bill <clears throat> related to um Economic development, I think that that has some stuff in there that some folks have some concerns about. 
you know, but I, I think overall, I think the final work product was pretty good. Was it different this year? Yes. Is it was it um, maybe a little worse uh, than normal as it relates to legislating via omnibus? Yes. I, I think I, you know, I can be honest about that. Um, but I do think the end result, there was a lot of crazy stuff that happened the week we came back. I mean, bills getting loaded up with just a whole host of stuff, you know, legalizing brass knuckles and a bunch of other fun things that, that we're never going to make it through the process, but people like to talk about. Um, but I think the end product, the stuff that is going to the governor's desk for the most part, uh, you, you know, I think is pretty much in order with, with what we've always done. And so, He's going to get to take a peek at it, and if we did something wrong, um, you know, then he can he can veto it, and we can come back and take another bite at the apple next year. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at uh, just the reports on the the session. I've read several, and and even uh, some of the left leaning publications give you high praise for your leadership. Uh, you are uh, walking away from a very challenging session for a lot of reasons, uh, but still, uh, even some of your critics are saying, you know what, uh, Majority Leader Caleb Rowden did a great job of, of just keeping things moving and. Uh, uh, trying to appease everybody. So uh, uh, congratulations. I guess that's a high honor, uh, considering where it's coming from, you know? so Hopefully they're, hopefully they're saying that in November, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, what, what would you say, and I, I hate to, to, to pose it this way, but it's uh, people understand it. What would you say, were the, what's the biggest winner of this session? What's something that, that passed that you think will have the, the greatest impact on the state of Missouri? You know, there's a few things uh, that that were uh, usually. Uh, I think they're kind of more under the radar. Um, it was a uh, one of them was a priority of the governor's and priority of a lot of right and left leaning groups. Uh, we we did some made some changes related to licensing and license reciprocity. So we started out and we actually it was the first bill we passed before we kind of left on our COVID break um, related to license reciprocity, professional license reciprocity for military spouses. So if there's a you know, a military person that's coming in to, to Missouri, uh, you know, at Whiteman or, or uh, Fort Leonard Wood, uh, and then their husband or wife has a professional license, you know, in, in whatever uh, area of, yeah. of industry, that there wasn't there, they would have to go through the process again in Missouri. And so we passed the bill uh, that made some changes to that. And then when we came back, uh, partly because of what we had seen in the COVID um, kind of response and being worried about, uh, you know, are we going to have enough doctors? Are we going to have enough nurses? Uh, you know, these sorts of things, all these questions that were being asked, we actually spread out that reciprocity amongst uh, anyone. And so that that, that has become a, a real hot button bipartisan uh, national issue. Um, you know, left leaning uh, entities, right leaning entities that say, hey, look, you know, we, we all can agree that uh, the, the, the fewer barriers that we can put up in front of people getting into an industry, starting a business, uh, you know, getting involved in a local business, et cetera, then that's a good thing. And it's also really, really good for uh, minority owned businesses, uh, women businesses, women owned businesses. And the, the, the Women's Foundation out of Kansas City has been uh, a vocal uh, proponent of this for a long time. And so that was a big one for us uh, and, and one that, you know, gets some attention. It'll get more attention. But I do think just functionally, uh, you know, what it does for people when they move into the state, uh, you know, yeah. uh, because because of a husband or wife or whatever else. So does that apply uh, to medical good. medical professionals, lawyers, uh, financial advisors? Is, is everybody covered? It, it, it is pretty broad. There's wow. the, there are some there are a few exceptions in there. Uh, and and obviously, if there are there's qualifications related to. 
you know, if the uh, if the state that you're coming from didn't have a licensing process, you know, those sorts of things. So it's it, we tried to be thoughtful. Arizona did something um, and kind of led the way on this, but we're one of the first states, I think, to embrace it more fully uh, and as opposed to, you know, mili- military spouses or something like that. And so that was a big win. Bipartisan win got got bipartisan support uh, in both the House yeah. and the Senate. What about Biggest Loser? What's the something that you, uh, legislation that you would have thought would have easily passed but didn't? Yeah, probably Wayfair. I think that's the one that is the uh, probably the highest profile uh, issue that that became even more high profile because of uh, the realities of COVID and everybody being in their homes and and uh, you know just being on Amazon fifteen times a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that is something that that there was an there was an increased level of of uh, enthusiasm and engagement on as we were in the COVID break and, you know, as um, as we're beginning to come back when we were thinking about what we're going to come back in the last three weeks, what are we going to try to do? You know, we're getting calls from, from a lot of people, uh, you know, rural, rural towns, rural counties, uh, big, big towns, big cities, um, all, all saying, Hey, look, this is, we've always known this was a problem. Now it's a really big problem. And we don't know what, what kind of the post COVID world looks like mm-hmm. as it relates to online sales. And so, um, you know, I've, I've explained the realities of that issue. We've got some people who don't want to cut any, uh, sort of don't, don't want to have any revenue offset at all. We have some yeah. people who want to have some and some people who want to have a bunch. And so just finding the, the, the parameters and the variables to, to, for all those things to line up in, in the time window that we had, uh, was really tough. How and, much? And, uh, how much credit does the conservative caucus get for killing that? And and really, what was their role this session? I think there were some expectations early on that they would not be as as influential as they had been in the past. But what, how did that turn out? Yeah, you know, I think <laughs> I think they probably. I mean, full disclosure: if they weren't there, we probably would have passed Wayfair. I mean, I think that's that's probably a, a pretty certain statement mm-hmm. uh, i do think they found ways um to to do what they do uh, in, in a little bit more um, um adversary or a little less adversarial way i think uh, this year you know and people think well these these guys and gals there's six of them in the senate they're in lockstep on everything well they're really not yeah. i mean they, they're they, they obviously everybody has disagreements even when you uh you know share an ideological perspective on a lot of stuff and so you know, we we got along fine. I mean, obviously, we weren't in the building for six weeks, and so if we would have been there for the full allotment of time, I don't know what would have happened. But um, I, I think they, I think they found different ways to be effective, and and you know, they they all want to get stuff done like we do, and so I think they've anybody who wants to operate in the Senate has to figure out: Do you want to be the person that? passes stuff or do you want to be the person that kills stuff because it's really hard to do both yeah i want to go back to the omnibus stuff Uh, so i i've heard uh from from critics to say that uh uh, anything that is passed in the omnibus legislation is subject to uh being challenged uh being uh overturned uh any laws that are are created as as a result of that process is that your opinion what how would you uh how how risky is that stuff yeah i mean i think it's it, it, there's all that that risk always exists, uh, and and you know ever ever since we passed Hammerschmidt uh, years ago, that that has always been a, a increase. There was increased scrutiny on uh, you know single subject and multiple subject bills. 
I, you know, I, I think the stuff that we passed um, this year, at least out of the Senate, um, I, I, we always felt pretty good about uh, making sure that the, it stayed under the same umbrella. So if it's a transportation bill or if it's a local uh, local government political subdivision bill, uh, you know, now that those are obviously very broad uh, scopes of, of uh, subject matter. And so you can fit a lot of stuff under there. And so, um, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if something doesn't get challenged, but it, it in a normal year, usually something's going to get challenged. And yeah. so, you know, the court's going to decide. And, and the good thing that they've done for the most part uh, in, in previous uh, Hammerschmidt cases is that if there's something that's out of line, if there's something that's unconstitutional as it relates to single subject, they they'll strike that piece, but they won't strike the whole bill, mm. and so um, uh, that that allows the good stuff to stay in more times than not. And so um, the, the court has been generally better than not on on that particular issue up until now. Yeah, uh, it is an election year. Uh, did you see some uh, different behavior because of that fact? You know, l- less than normal. Uh, obviously, partly just because we weren't there that much. Um, but I, I do think, and I think that probably was the, the chief sort of um, motivation behind there being less uh, election year stuff. But usually there is. I mean, we always, when we talk about uh, kind of things we want to accomplish, how how successful, how productive we can be in a in an in an off off year. You know, you can get a lot of stuff done in a, in an election year. You know, there's going to be. Um, you know, kind of grandstanding for its own sake. We just didn't see a lot of it. Uh, and I think that was partly because, you know, the response to COVID from my perspective was, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to work hard, we're going to work together, we're going to communicate well, because we're not going to try to play hide the ball on this stuff, you know, and try to try to pass and shove big, massive things through uh, in the midst of a global pandemic. I don't think anybody wanted to do that. And so I just, I think that Increased communication, that kind of camaraderie, common sense of purpose, I think probably um, push push down some of that political rhetoric a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, which which from my perspective is is always a good thing. Yeah, um, we got about two minutes before our break here, but just a quick question about uh, election reform. How would you uh, summarize what what uh, how elections in Missouri have changed as a result of this last uh, session? Yeah, so we we passed Senate Bill 631, which basically just added a provision to the existing absentee um, carve out that said if you have been diagnosed with COVID or in or in the CDC high risk categories, uh, that you can have you can get an absentee ballot that doesn't have to be notarized, uh, and so that falls in the same category as um, current law as it relates to people who are sick and indigent. Um, we we added a mail-in provision uh, that will only be relevant for this this year this election cycle those do have to be notarized so i think um the 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 assertion that this that the way that we did it makes our election elections less safe i think is not true uh, because of the notary piece on the mail-in ballot Mm -hmm. um and so that's a that that was a critical piece uh that that really will from my perspective uh keep there from being uh you know really really big instances of fraud uh, or any sort of kind of grand this you know conspiracies of of things that are uh, that p- how people can use mail in to to try and sway elections because of how we wrote it I just don't think that's possible. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds more complicated than I thought it was. But uh, when we come back from this break, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about uh, election reform in the state of Missouri. We are visiting with Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden. You're listening to the CEO Roundtable on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle.
are listening to Inside Columbia with Fred Perry on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. And welcome back to the CEO Roundtable Show. I'm Fred Perry, your host. Uh, good Saturday morning to you. We are visiting with Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden. We're talking about the 100th, the second session of the 100th uh, General Assembly that just wrapped up last week and uh, talking about the winners and losers from that. But election reform was obviously a very hot topic. Still a lot of confusion out there as to what is going to be required. So I, I want to go back and, and see if I can get a few more details from you, Senator. Um, so you can do a mail-in ballot if you are sick with COVID or you have been sick with COVID. What 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 are the requirements? Yeah, so you could actually do a an absentee. We we right now in current law, every absentee ballot has to be notarized, with the exception of there there are various boxes that you can check for the reason why you're seeking an absentee ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, box number two is you're doing it because you're sick. Uh, you know you can't get out of your house. Uh, you know there's a uh, there's a whole host of uh, ways, but basically, you know, your 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 physical um, abilities don't allow you to get out and vote, right? And so we added for this election only added to that that existing provision in the absentee uh, statutes uh, that exist currently uh, something that says, you know, basically, if you've been diagnosed with COVID or if or if you are in the CDC high risk categories, then you can get the absentee ballot. Um, uh, that that doesn't have to be notarized. So that's the only change that has happened on the absentee side of things. We added an additional mail-in piece, but there are no exceptions as it relates to, um, you know, whether or not the mail-ins have to be notarized. Every mail-in ballot is going to have to be notarized. And so I think that's a distinction between, um, you know, the the more political conversation around mail-in voting, uh, I, I think, hinges on that notary piece and whether or not you can have uh, kind of wild, wild west mail-in voting with no notary and and no it, no um, uh, understanding or uh, clarification as to checking who you are somewhere in the process. Whereas that notarization piece in our mail-in um, statute that we passed in six thirty one does account for that. And so, so if you're going to um, claim one of the exemptions to mail in your ballot in, in this upcoming November election. Uh, you're going to have to have it notarized regardless. Is that correct? If you, that's right. If you are taking, if you are taking advantage of the new mail-in uh, provision that only exists in the um, August and uh, November elections of this year, and then that provision of statute will sunset at the end of the year. Then, then if you're taking advantage of that new provision, yes, then then every one of those ballots has to be notarized. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I think there's a lot of confusion out there, and and yeah. uh, just what and you're seeing. Late, you know, it was a late um, kind of push that we made, and and I think you know, understanding that that this is going to be a different election year. Uh, and, and maybe treating it as such was something that we thought was um, important. And, and just to make sure that folks that regardless of what they're dealing with, if they've been if they've been, you know, I think the idea that that we were going to allow anyone for any reason, uh, you know, just, just stating that they have some fear, I think, was a line that we weren't going to cross uh, just because there wasn't enough support for that. But trying to find the distinction between. Uh, people who actually are sick uh, and 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 do have some reason to to be scared for getting out in public because of COVID and and you know potentially uh, being exposed, 
we wanted to find a place uh, for, for them to be able to continue to feel safe and, and, and make sure that their voice is heard. One other aspect of this uh, election reform, it gives the Secretary of State, as I read it, it gives him subpoena power to investigate elections. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so that's been something that um, a- actually has had bipartisan support over the years. Uh, so, so the Secretary of State has always been uh, tasked with uh, investigating uh, potential election irregularities, but when it comes to uh, you know taking the next step of the investigation and 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 trying to gather documents and and things of that nature that would be relevant to that investigation, uh, he or she has never had subpoena power, and so they have to go to either the um, the attorney general or the state auditor uh, to to basically do uh, you know subpoena through them, and so um, we we felt like that was not it just didn't really make any sense uh, and obviously when you when you hear subpoena power everybody's kind of political uh antennas go up and and how can that be used politically and and whatever else and you know i i think it's a reality if if we are tasking the secretary of state whether it's a republican democrat if we're tasking them which we have for a number of years with with investigating election irregularities then you've got to get them, give them the tools to be able to do that. And yeah. so that's what, uh, that's what that provision came from. A lot of rumbling about uh, cleaner Missouri. Can you t- tell us a little bit of what changed? Uh, voters approved uh, something, I think, back in 2018. I can't remember. But, uh, and, uh, but this is going to go back to the voters. Is that correct? That's, that, assuming it survives, I think it's been being challenged a couple of different ways. Uh, but, yeah, the, the, the language will be on uh, either the August or November ballot. Uh, and basically, it just gives voters another choice. I, I have thought from the beginning that that there were a lot of good provisions and provisions that I generally have supported in clean Missouri. Uh, the 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 way that the the redistricting portion uh, was written gives one person a license to gerrymander in, in a way that that Missouri's never seen. Uh, and and so I, I always fall back to it. I think everybody the, the the general talking point on the from the left side of the political aisle says that Republicans are trying to do this to. Uh, to, to gerrymander and keep these seats. Uh, the, the reality of the situation, though, is that the people who are hurt the most are majority-minority communities in the city of St. Louis and the city of Kansas City. I tell everybody there are there is one and maybe two, but I know of one that I, I remember in 2012, uh, right in the heart of the city of St. Louis. It is so uh, so heavily majority Democrat uh, that Mitt Romney statistically got zero percent of the vote. Hmm. Uh, and so it's about a 97% Democrat district. And yeah. so clean Missouri would say that, that that's not good enough and that there needs to be, uh, you know, somehow, some way, which the only way you do this is to stretch that district way, way, way far out to the suburbs. outside the city of St. Yeah. Louis to somewhere else. And, yeah. and so then all of a sudden you've got, you know, a, a, the potential for someone to, to, uh, maybe spend a bunch of money and, and, and win a seat that, uh, that they're representing folks that they don't live anywhere near. They don't understand their their concerns. They don't yeah. understand their issues. Um, uh, and, and, and that's just always been problematic to me. The same thing rings true in rural Missouri, and that's why a lot of rural Missouri uh, Republicans were were against the idea because you 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 know there are there are sixty seventy percent uh, Republican districts in rural Missouri, and quite a lot of them. But you're not ever going to change that and that 60 70 percent number is actually reflective of their community and so yeah. i just want districts that are, that are representative of, the, of their communities and i don't think the first proposal um be it well-intentioned or not 
um, would would actually do that. Who who would actually be the state demographer if that uh, uh, if that version goes through goes forward, or if the new version goes forward? How how would uh, districts be divided? Yeah, so that's a whole other uh, kind of conversation. So I, my, myself and my role as majority leader, as well as the minority leader, uh, who that that person is now John Rizzo from Kansas City. We actually are tasked with with um, the, the the auditor uh, takes in the applications for the demographer. There were six of them uh, initially. I think one person backed out, and so now there are five left. And so the the uh, Senator Rizzo and I basically have there's some mechanism by which we can we interview these folks, we do the background checks, we we go through the process, and then we can uh, basically uh, either agree on one or we can cut cut out two of them right. uh, each of us has the ability to cut out two and right. then from that point the, the the auditor would make the final decision and so the, the the problem with there's a couple of problems number one the state already has a demographer and and uh he he has been there a long time he's very well respected um knows more about this stuff than anybody else and so the idea that we would bring in somebody new i think is uh, you know, redundant at best and, and, and maybe poorly motivated at worst. Uh, but then uh, the, the people that have um, applied for the job, uh, I'm struggling to know. And, and, and these people have been, their names are public and, and I think their resumes are out there, have been published in Missouri Times, a couple of other places. Um, but, but I struggle to, to uh, understand and, and kind of am grappling with the idea of whether they're qualified or not. Yeah. And so that's a secondary conversation that, that we haven't had yet, um, but it's problematic because if we're asking one person uh, to, to uh, draw maps that, are gonna, that we're going to live under for 10 years as a state, which obviously that's a huge deal regardless of what side of the political aisle you're from, we need them to be good. We need them to be qualified. We need them to understand the realities of 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 what they're doing and 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 frankly i'm just not i'm not convinced that any of the folks who we have before us now uh have any of those uh, have all of that stuff uh you know kind of accounted for so that's another piece of it that that we're going to have to wrestle with as we move forward yeah good 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 information um tell me about the hyperloop but what happened with the hyperloop so we passed a bill uh, on the last day uh, that um, basically defined the Hyperloop and state statute. Uh, it did a bunch of other things. It was a, it, it became the transportation omnibus. Um, uh, there was a, there were a couple of additional provisions added. Um, one was uh, saying that no state funds could be expended. Um, basically just protecting the reality that, hey, we've got roads and bridges that are crumbling, you know, so mm-hmm. let's make sure we've got those things figured out uh, before we build the Hyperloop. And then there was another one that, that I think made some changes um, to uh, potentially the Hyperloop's ability to use eminent domain or, uh, you know, basically to, to run across I-70. And so that one was a little bit more problematic from the folks who have been, and I was on the Hyperloop task force with, the Speaker of the House and uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe, a bunch of other folks, and um, it's it, it is a far off idea, but it is one that may not be as far off as people think. Um, and so, you know, uh, we're we're I, I, I'm not sure what the governor is going to do with that uh, piece of legislation. Honestly, there were uh, there were a couple of things in there that I think some folks had heartburn over, and it it was one of only two or three things that we passed out of the Senate on the last day, and so. Um, so it, you know, there's, there's some good stuff in there for the hyperloop and maybe some stuff that gives them a little bit of consternation as they move forward. But we're one of, 
We're in the we, we think we're in the final four, uh, along with I want to say Texas and Ohio and North Carolina. I think uh, to be one of the states that gets the test track, uh, which would be uh, pretty monumental because yeah. everybody seems to think that if you get the test track, if they decide to move on and build the next phase of it, that they're going to build it, uh, you know, where the test track is. So it's a pretty big deal if we can get that. Yeah, uh, a couple of little things: uh, motorcycle uh, riders. Uh, over the age of 26, uh, if this goes through the governor, will not have to wear helmets anymore. Is that correct? That is correct. We uh, That was a part of the same bill, transportation omnibus. Um, you know, the governor vetoed that last year uh, in, in a little different form. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe the 26 provision was on there. I think there was another uh, insurance piece that was added to this year's version that wasn't in last year's version. And so... Um, uh, but that is that that was in uh, House Bill 1963, and so that one is headed to the governor as well. So uh, the the hope is is that by the time you're you're 26 years old, you're smart enough to go ahead and wear a helmet anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that was the that that's always been a really contentious issue, and Jeff, one of those issues that flies under the radar a little yeah. bit, but it's it's a big deal there. And you know, I think it, the the one side just says, hey, this is an individual right, and the other side says, well, you know, if your individual right costs me my taxpayer money, you know, and, and millions of dollars because of brain injuries and other things, uh, that that's always been the back and forth, and uh, that was the conversation we had on the Senate floor uh, this year, like all the rest of the years, for sure. Yeah. Uh, something completely outrageous here, actually requiring the county assessor to physically inspect properties where he increases or he or she uh, increases the assessed valuation by 15%. Uh, was that controversial? So I think that was in 1854, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there was a lot of, uh, obviously, St. Louis and Kansas City have uh, uh, had taken some pretty big uh, assessment uh, increases this past year, uh, much to the consternation, obviously, of their taxpayers and and. Uh, some of their local senators and representatives. And so we had a lot of conversations on uh, property assessments. And, and uh, I think that was a piece that, uh, you know, had some conversation, but frankly, yeah. not a lot. Let me interrupt you that, there, Senator. We're going to take a quick break here. and we come back, we're, we're going to talk about that and, and some of the legislation that didn't make it through. This is the CEO Roundtable on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. Inside Columbia with Fred Perry on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. And welcome back. Uh, this is the final segment of the CEO Roundtable on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. Fred Perry, your host this morning. We are visiting with Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden, uh, who represents uh, our district here. Is it still the 19th district? Is that correct? 
That's right. Yep. And uh, we um, uh, got news, of course, this week that uh, someone that served uh, a couple turns before you, Senator Chuck Graham, passed away uh, this week. And, and uh, so our condolences to Chuck's family. I knew Chuck's father very well. I had thought the world of him. And, and uh, mm. so um, uh, former Senator yeah, very sad. Yeah, Chuck Graham passing away this week. Um, I want to talk about some of the things that did not do so well in this legislative session. Um, boy, we have talked about uh, a PDMP for many, many years, and we used to blame a senator from St. Joseph, a physician, for uh, this thing not not passing. Uh, senator Schatz, I believe. Um, but um, for some reason, it didn't pass again. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you what, what can you share? Yeah, so we, um, we we got it out of the Senate this year, uh, actually fairly early before our, our COVID uh, break, and uh, it, it went over to the House, stayed in the House for, sat in the House for uh, months, uh, at least a couple of months, uh, and, and then they brought it up for a vote uh, on, I believe, Tuesday of the last week of session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it, it is always, it's never struggled to have the votes in the house. Uh, you know, it'll get 90, 95 votes, which is a, uh, not a, not a rousing, uh, victory, but always a comfortable one. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year for some reason, and there have been kind of diverging opinions as to, to why uh, yet about 30 Democrats had decided to vote against, uh, that uh, on that particular vote. And so in, in, in that, if, if those 30 Democrats would have voted for it, uh, on that vote on Tuesday, it would have been sent to the governor, and, and and presumably the governor would have signed it, and we could have put this conversation to bed. So we, uh, you know, there were conversations about the Democrats leveraging that that issue uh, on a couple of other issues, and you know, kind of the Senate Democrats and the House Democrats working together to to try and get another bite at the apple on some uh, other issues that we had already kind of put to bed, and so. Um, so then we had to come back. We, we, the house made a change, uh, in, in PDMP took out a, a piece relating to fentanyl. Uh, those Democrats decided to, to vote for it that time. It comes back to the Senate. We don't get it until the last day. Well, in the last day, uh, you know, those, those pesky, uh, that pesky conservative caucus that we talked about, mm-hmm. they, they, instead of having to stand up and kill it for three months they only had you know seven seven hours or so that they had to to um stand up and so they they made the decision that they weren't going to let it go and so we're we're another year in without it um you know 80 percent 85 percent of the state has one uh i I don't love the idea that st louis that st louis county is running it I, i certainly think that's a um, not good uh, and doesn't speak very highly of, uh, you know, the state's ability to lead on stuff like this. Um, but it is what it is. I, I think it, we'll, we'll, we'll come back next year and it'll be a priority in the Senate early next year. And hopefully the house can, can put us over the finish line, uh, unlike this year. And Missouri re- remains the only state out of 50 that does not have a, a prescription drug monitoring program, correct? That's right. Officially. Yeah. Um, where I talked about Wayfair, let's talk about the Grain Belt Express, because I understand uh, just from my reading uh, that there was uh, some trickery in the final hours uh, surrounding uh, the, the Grain Belt Express, uh, dealing with eminent domain. Can you kind of set that up for our listeners? Yeah, so Grain Belt's a, a wind, wind energy uh, pipeline that has been proposed to go through parts of northern Missouri. Um, uh, they They have been around the process that they've started the process years and years and years ago. I mean, like when I was still in the house, um, they, uh, uh, got denied at the TSC, the public service commission a couple of times, made, made some concessions and we're, we're going to offer 
um, energy to municipalities uh, around the state, and and uh, that was part of how the PSC um, kind of brought them in as a quasi. They're a private entity, but gave them some quasi public powers uh, to potentially include them in a domain. And so you had this conversation around a, a a private company having the ability to use eminent domain, which is not something that I uh, am supportive of and, and certainly was, you know, we, there were a lot of folks that had heartburn over it. There were, there were a lot of folks in the Senate who were okay with uh, not wanting the bill to restrict them from using eminent domain. They, they didn't like that bill. They thought, Hey, this is jobs. This is, you know, low cost energy, et cetera, et cetera. There were, it was a really interesting, um, uh, cross-section of Republicans and Democrats, rural and urban, who were against uh, the, the, the legislation to ban them from using it in a domain, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting in and of itself. So anyway, the bill dies um, in one of these omnibus bills that we were working on the last couple of days. Um, the House had, had, had slipped in uh, a, a provision that uh, dealt with heritage farms, but it was designed to basically uh, allow all of these folks in northern Missouri to reclassify their farm, get up to 150% of their property value. And it was kind of an end around. Um, I'm not sure I disagreed with the policy, but I did disagree, as did every other senator, regardless of where they were on the issue. We did disagree with how it was done. And yeah. so uh, so we made a really unprecedented uh, uh action to reconsider a bill that we had TAFP'd, uh, which means truly agreed and finally passed, uh, undid what we had done, uh, and and, uh, then went back and repassed uh, some of those other provisions, uh, not including the heritage stuff. So So that will not make it to the governor's desk because it would have, but because of the trickery in the final hours uh, by some folks, uh, you killed it. That's right. Yeah, interesting. That and that is unprecedented. I mean, it's been a long time since that's happened in the Senate. Is that correct? Yeah, we don't. No, nobody that's been around uh, for any period of time. You know, some some lobbyists and some staffers have been around that building for you know decades. Uh, they they said it was a first. So. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> I mean, it's. That, it's that, that, it's, I'm not sure I wanted to be a part of. But, yeah, uh, it's it's good like to uh, stand on principle, even in Jeff City, right? Yeah, that's right. That's, um, right. that's good. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, just a couple of the small things and I want to get into, uh, health, uh, COVID here in a little bit, but, um, texting, uh, while driving for adults, there is currently legislation that keeps, uh, kids 18 and under from texting while driving. Uh, but there was an attempt to, uh, do this, restrict this for adults as well. Uh, and that did not, did not survive. Uh, no, I, I think that's a, you know, that's an issue that I think the folks who, um, uh, don't I, I would say there's a broader coalition of folks. I don't want to make generalizations, but a lot of the folks that think, you know, the, the motorcycle helmet kind of issue, uh, it, it's all about personal individual freedom and individual yeah. liberty. And, and so I think that's where the dividing line is on that issue, mm-hmm. uh, probably bipartisan support. And I, I think probably bipartisan opposition to that idea. Jeff yeah. City. So people, um, it, it, they don't like the idea of uh, protecting people from themselves, I guess it's, it's sort of a, uh, personal freedoms, which I, I get, yeah. I understand. Yeah. I, I respect yeah. that. Uh, no, um, on concealing carry on campus. That, that uh, was something that I know, uh, Jennifer Bukowski had felt somewhat uh, compassionate about, but, uh, that did not get passed either. Is that right? That's right. We the House had put it in uh, Senate Bill six hundred fairly early, or maybe it was after we came back. 
I had loaded that up with a couple of other uh, uh, gun-related provisions, some other public safety provisions, uh, and then that was on the last day. The House actually stripped that bill back to the underlying bill, which 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 actually dealt with uh, public safety and and uh, passed that bill. So yeah, nothing, nothing on the conceal on the, on the campus carry front this year. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things I'd like to shift gears and, and, um, I, you know, I just want to talk a bit about COVID-19 and, and sort of what we've learned about ourselves as a result of, of COVID-19. Uh, I'm sure as the Senate Majority Leader, you have heard from a lot of county commissioners, a lot of folks, uh, around the state that, that have concerns about a local unelected health director having, uh, the power to shut down businesses and shut down churches. Uh, you have watched the governor closely as, as you are, uh, probably have a, a, a very uh, close relationship with the governor. Uh, you've seen Dr. Randall uh, Williams uh, as the state's health director uh, make some decisions. Uh, Missouri has done really tremendously well. There's There's been some high uh, occurrences in uh, St. Charles, in, in St. Louis and in and, and Kansas City. But for the most part, the state, relatively speaking, is in pretty good shape in terms of COVID-19. But what what are you walking away from this this COVID nineteen crisis? What do you, what do you um, what have you learned? What are your takeaways? Uh, what needs to be fixed? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge question and one that I don't I'm not sure we even really close to have the answer to entirely. I, I think we're still I think it's it's still a bit of a learning process because I, I think there's still uh, ways that you know we're gonna. Good, good things are going to come out of it. Not so good things are going to come out. I, th- I think that's still a, a journey that we're on, kind of collectively. I, I do think, uh, you know, the, the I, I have been pu- publicly, you know, supportive of the governor in some decisions, and, and been a little hesitant on some other decisions. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, as we sit back here today, and hindsight's twenty twenty, we know now what we didn't know then. I, I really do think he's done a good job. I mean, I think the the, the kind of slower methodical approach probably gave some folks and, and maybe still does. And, and, and it did me, frankly, you know, it gives us, gave me some heartburn and, and worried me a little bit because uh, I, I was kind of of the opinion. It's the reason why the Senate left a uh, session a week earlier than the house did. Um, they had some budget stuff. We just said, Hey, better be safe than sorry, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and, and obviously that's a one, one small decision uh, as compared to some bigger ones. Was but, that your decision? That was, that was, it was the president of the Senate and I uh, had the initial conversation based on some interaction and from, from uh, rank and file senators. And then we had a caucus meeting and said, Hey, what do you want to do? And and that was the decision that we came up with. But, you know, I think the, the, the overarching thing that I think a lot of folks are seeing is, is uh, we talk a lot about big government and we use it as a, a, um, kind of political rhetoric more times than not. But I do think people, there are, are some folks who have, have been exposed to a type of big government that they really don't like. Uh, and, and maybe they didn't see that, uh, you know, before this. And and this isn't a political statement because I, I've tried not to be political, you know, in the midst of any of this COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I do think people have not fully understood uh, until now what, kind of what you're saying, you know, a, a local public health official being able to tell a church whether or not they can function, um, it, that, that's a step too far for a lot of people. Right. And I think that's something that, you know, you, until you see it and until you hear some of these horror stories from, uh, you know, maybe California or New York or Illinois, uh, I, I just don't think it registers. And so 
again, it, it, most of this stuff, the, the right answer is somewhere in the middle. And I don't even, I don't even, you know, necessarily mean the political middle, just, uh, it, it, there, there are there are ways that you do things in which you can take in the data, you can understand the science, but that you know you can also be mindful of the fact that if you shut down an economy and literally half of the people who have a, a forty thousand dollar year or less job are losing their jobs, the the public health consequences from that decision alone and from that reality will absolutely dwarf anything that ever comes from COVID-19, right? That, that's yeah. a, the, the, that reality exists. And that doesn't mean that COVID-19 is not real. It doesn't mean that the science isn't there and that we should take it seriously. All, all of that stuff is true. But there is the, the, the opposite side of the question that, that you just – all I've said all along is that none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. I mean, this, these are not binary choices all of this stuff has to exist together. Yep. Businesses have to function because we have to employ people and people have to make money and pay taxes and be able to feed their families and, and live out the American dream. And we'll get back there and, and uh, hopefully we can be better off on the back end for having endured this together. Yeah, Senator Rowden, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us for the CEO Roundtable. We'll be back next Saturday morning right here on Hot Talk 93.9 The Eagle. This city is my city, baby.